Okay. Too many things to too many things to make sure I'm organized with up here. Okay. Thank you, Ben, for oh, he already slipped downstairs. Let's thank him for opening us with prayer this morning. Um, we are continuing. I should back this up. You all know what this is. This is our last Sunday doing this study. We we're just doing this over the summer, and you have heard it said. We could do a lot of these. We could probably spend. Uh, a good year just looking at contrast easily between things that we find in the Old Testament, things we find today. But what we're going to look at today is uh, contrast between something with regard to the second coming, that is that there are signs versus looking for Christ to return for us in the rapture. And of course, you and I, to be honest, and you all need to know this because I notice sometimes when uh, when we're in a group where there's a conversation taking place as part of the Bible study, and there's a lot less conversation here on Sunday mornings there's, than there is in some of our other studies, uh, a lot of people are surprised to find out that most Christians do not believe in the rapture. Most Christians don't believe in the rapture. Or they believe in a completely different version of the rapture than what we understand. There's, there, uh, I would say the bulk of people that identify themselves as Christians would say that they believe that Christ is returning someday. They don't believe in a literal thousand-year kingdom. They don't believe in Daniel's 70th week. They believe in one way or another. We are already sort of in that thousand-year kingdom, and we're sort of always in Daniel's 70th week because it's always just hard, and there's problems going on. And that's the way they interpret the Bible. So there's going to be a general return of Christ in which he's going to gather all people that are believers all through history are going to be resurrected and we're all just going to be kind of one people of God in the future. That's the bulk of people that identify as Christians. That's where they stand. So what we're talking about here today is different. And then there is what's called popularly called the classic pre-mill position. Now we are pre-mill, which means we believe that the return of Christ to this earth happens before a literal thousand-year kingdom. The classic pre-mill position, which is dominant among a lot of evangelicals, is that the church goes through Daniel's 70th week, which is, again, kind of generalized into, it's just a bad time. But then that's always kind of been a bad time. It just kind of gets worse towards the end. And then Christ comes and so then this rapture happens before this kingdom starts. But again, it's kind of a one general people of God, one general resurrection, one general judgment in a lot of these different things. And that's not a, I'm generalizing, uh, uh, if you can't pick that up. So what we're going to look at would be different for a lot of people because a lot of people would say, well, the coming of Christ and the rapture are the same thing. This is the way they would teach it, that this is all the same thing, that there is no difference. And uh, I believe there is a difference, <clears throat> and we're going to point out a couple of those differences today. But if you take your Bibles to begin with this morning, to look at this, and let's go to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. Now in the last year or so, we have had this worldwide pandemic. And it is. I mean, it, it it is a pandemic because it's an illness that has affected a huge portion of the population. Most of the population has only gotten sick or barely sick. Very few have been seriously sick. But 
it has gone something that has gone worldwide. Okay, so we're not we're not denying that. But because of the way the world has responded to this event over the last year and such, there are, of course, evangelicals that are going to look at the headlines, are going to look at the things, and then they're going to go, oh, the coming of Christ has to be closer because this is really bad. And this is the and this is the way they always do this. When you've got a lot of wars or there's a huge earthquake, uh, different things like that, people are always looking at that. And they come over here to Matthew 24, and this is where they get this. And the part of the problem is, is they don't distinguish between the second coming of Christ and the rapture for the church, the snatching away of believers. So verse 1. And we're going to see kind of how this goes. Verse 1 here of Matthew 24. And Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up uh, to point out or display the, the temple buildings to him. Uh, in I think it's in the account either in Mark or Luke. It says that they were pointing out, look at all the, look at all the beautiful stonework. You know, look at all how well the stones were put together and everything like this. They're pointing this out. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone uh, here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. So he continues out of there. They cross the valley from Jerusalem. They go over to the Mount of Olives, which sits opposite of Jerusalem, sits to the east. And he's sitting on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us. Now, there's three things, three questions that they ask. When will these things be? That's, when is this temple going to be overturned? When's that going to happen? This overturning of the temple and the stones. That's the first question. Uh, when will these things, what is the sign of your coming? There's the second one. And third, and what is the sign of the end or the consummation of the age? They've got three things that they want to know. So they're trying to put all this together. <clears throat> and Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will, and they will mislead many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. For, uh, for these must take place. And yet, we're not at the end yet. We haven't reached the end, the consummation. We haven't come to the point, <coughs> excuse me, where, where all of these things that you're concerned about are actually going to come together. And so he goes on in verse 7. It says, For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and there will be earthquakes. But all these things, these are just the beginning of birth pains. So if you went over to the book of Revelation, which we're not doing, and you read Revelation chapter 6, you see Jesus breaking these seals on this, this scroll. And as he breaks these seals, there are written on this scroll, these scroll judgments, these seal judgments. And that's what these things involve. And uh, it, it's interesting, I was listening to somebody the other day that was, says we shouldn't confuse God's wrath with what happens at the beginning. But if you get to the end of the conclusion of all that stuff that's going on, you know what, men? They're smarter than Bible teachers today because it tells us in the book of Revelation, the men go, the, the wrath of God has come! Look at this! Look at what's going on! So they look at all these wars and these things and the famines. They look at that and they recognize this to be God's wrath. God's judgment. But they're still, at that point, it's still just, the beginning of birth pains. And all of you moms in here, you know what that's like. 
when you're just initially you're going to labor. My wife very my wife did not have have that. My wife, it's like when it was time to have kids, it was like boom, let's go. Uh, but some of them they kind of have this build up, you know, for a day. Hmm, things don't feel right. My wife had no clue. It was just she didn't have anything. Midnight, boom, it hits, and we have a kid by three thirty. Uh, and so it was a little bit different, but most of them, they kind of have this buildup. And he says, that's what this is. This is just the beginning of these things. And then they will deliver you to this word here, this word to tribulation, to adversity. We have this, we're used to the word tribulation and great tribulation. It's just a word meaning a lot of pressure, a lot of negative adverse pressure in this. And, and they will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and deliver one another up uh, to one another. And many false prophets will arise and they will mislead many. And because of lawlessness, as he's looking at all this, he says, you're going to see lawlessness here. It says, most people's love will grow cold or the love of many will grow cold. So what you even perceive as love out there in the world, it's just going to kind of evaporate. You're just not going to see, well, if everybody's kind of looking out for themselves in the midst of all of this horror, they're not going to be too concerned about anybody else but themselves. And therefore, Jesus says their love is going. In other words, and I've, I've, we've said this before, when you go to Matthew 25 and you have the judgment of the sheep and the goats, if we look at that and we go, it sounds like these people are saved by their works. No, what he's able to do is he's able to... The, the, that those goats are the Gentiles that go through Daniel's 70th week. And we do not, this is a problem that we have when we read this text. I don't think we really appreciate how severe Daniel's 70th week will be. We're going to come to a verse here in which Jesus says it's unprecedented. There was nothing ever like it in the past and there won't be anything like it afterwards. It's that horrible. That means World War II and the Holocaust in which 12 million people died, 6 million Jews, but another 6 million non-Jews were di died in the Holocaust. You look at that and you think, that's a lot of people in addition to all the other stuff that goes on. And that's just one war that's kind of close proximity to some of us a little bit. We look at that. He says, no, this is, this is going to make that look like a cakewalk. That's how severe Daniel's 70th week is going to be. He says it is, Jesus says it's unprecedented. Jeremiah says it is unprecedented. And Daniel says that it is unprecedented. That is how severe this time is. And because it is so severe, you know what? The way people conduct themselves is going to be a good opportunity for God to demonstrate the nature of the unsaved man that thinks, I'm a good guy. I do good things for my neighbor. I show love to my neighbor. Look at the things that I do for them, how I help. There's a community need. I reach out and I help. I'm a good person. Until everything caves in around you and the last thing you want to think about is helping anybody else. All you can think about is saving your own skin. And that's exactly what's going to happen. And so he's going to be able to contrast the real nature of those who are not believers to those who are believers, who are going to sacrifice the little that they have and put their life on the line for those that have brought them the good news of Jesus Christ. It's going to be that different. And it, they're just trying to explain this here when he's saying, 
that the love of many is going to grow cold there in verse, uh, verse 12. Help us understand that. I think if you put this together, it is helpful because I know it's one of the things we struggle with out there. We look at the world and they go, you know, these people aren't, they don't seem all that bad. They actually look like pretty good people. They do good things for each other. They're nice. We just can't see their heart. We can only see the actions and the things coming out of their mouth, but we don't actually know, as Jesus said, we don't know what, what's in the heart and what comes out of the heart. We don't see that. God does. So he goes on from there in verse 13. But one who endures to the end or is patient unto the end, that one will be saved. So a lot of people mistake that verse and they go, see, you got to endure to the end. Don't give in. Don't break it. You break fellowship, boom, you, you don't make it to heaven. But that's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is, you know, the one that is patient just keeps doing what God wants. If they make it out to the end, guess what? There's salvation for them. And I don't think he's talking spiritual salvation. Because it's not spiritual salvation by works because they endured. It's talking about that there's deliverance out there. That's something to look forward to. That there actually will be some, there will be deliverance for these people. And then it goes on. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world for a witness to the nations. And the end, then the end shall come. And I know I've shared before when Peg and I were in college, there was a man that we knew, one of the, a fellow student, and he was finishing up his teaching degree. But he wasn't going to teach school. He was going to become a missionary. He was going to, and I don't know if he was going to drive, join uh, uh, Ethnos 360. But it wasn't been that back then. It would have been uh, New Tribes. I don't know if that's a group. But he was going to try to go to unreached people groups. And his go verse was this: He had in his mind set Christ could not come back until the gospel reached the whole world. And again, the problem that he has is he's taking verses that are not for us. This is not about us. This is not about the rapture. This is about the second coming. And it's about something that happens in seven years. And think about that. The church has been on this planet for, at this present time, about 2,000 years. And yet in 2,000 years, we have not reached the whole world with the gospel. In seven years' time, and in the worst time the world has ever seen, the gospel is going to go out to everyone. It's going to have reached all over the world in that space of time. By the way, that's, a, that's God. It's the, gospel. it's the gospel of the kingdom. It's not the gospel that we proclaim. And the th significance of that gospel of the kingdom is one of the things these people are going to have to believe at that time. That's what they're going to have to believe. So then he says in verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of through Daniel the prophet. So, Kale, what does abomination of desolation mean? Okay, he did this. Good answer. Because that's why I think most, I, I, honestly, I think if you ask most adults, what's abomination of desolation? A lot of most adults will go, uh, um, it's the abomination of desolation. I mean, they don't know. It sounds bad. But what it means, it's something that is so horrible that it's going to demonstrate to the Jews that the temple's empty. Desolate or means deserted. It means it shows the, to the Jews that God's not in the temple. And they need to learn that. And so something's going to happen. I, we, I believe, I uh, my understanding of this, this has to do with the man of lawlessness. This is 2 Thessalonians 2, that he goes in and he sits down in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, and says, I'm God. And that's going to prove to the Jews, God's not there. 
So he says, this is what was spoken of through Daniel the prophet. When you see it stand in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to, the, flee to the mountains. Now this happens midway through. This is about the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week. We're about three and a half years in. Let him who is on the rooftop, don't let him go down and take the things that are out of his house. The one that's out in the field, don't go back to the other end of the field to pick up his coat. And woe to those who are with child and those who are nursing babes in those days. But pray that your flight should not be in the winter or on the Sabbath, and then there will be great tribulation. The first part's the beginning of birth pains. But this next part is when the great tribulation starts. Such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall be. You see that? Jesus was telling you, Jesus says it is unprecedented. And unless those days should be cut short, no life would be saved. That's how severe they are. If God didn't cut those days short, nobody'd survive on the planet. It's that severe. Could you imagine a time that's existed prior to this that was so severe that God would have to actually intervene and shorten those days? Not the number of those days, but how long those days last. How Instead of having a 24-hour day, let's make it a 20-hour day or a 18- or 16-hour day. It's got to shorten the day up, which... The Bible seems to indicate that the world starts spinning a little faster. Unless he shortens those days, it says there would nobody would be saved or survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. He does it for the sake of the believers that are living. Then if anyone says to you, look over here, here's the Christ or there. Don't believe him for false Christ and false prophets will arise and they will show great signs. And I, this verse is really important to get here. They will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead. If it were possible, even the elect. I think that verse is important because stuff goes on right now in Christianity. And sometimes you watch Christians buy into that and you're going, can't believe that they bought into that. That's just a lie. But here's a time in the future where he says these, the, these people are going to present lying signs and wonders so convincing. If it were possible, you could even deceive the elect. The elect that's how convincing they are. And yeah, we have believers now that sometimes buy into some real nonsense. So that doesn't surprise me that you can have something that's weird. Just because something seems incredible you got to be careful and weigh it as a believer. Behold, I've told you in advance. Therefore, if they say to you, Behold, he is over here in the wilderness, do not go forth. Or behold, he's in that inner room, do not believe. For, I, I, I know I've given credit to Stan Nelson for this many times because he's the one that asked the question or pointed this out at a Bible study probably over 20 years ago. For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, which is that's what it does. Did you know that scientifically lightning always goes east to west? No, it doesn't. Lightning goes all over the place, north to south, east to west. And sometimes it looks like it comes straight down. Stan points that out. Why does it say the lightning goes east to west? Lightning goes wherever it wants to go. It goes all over the place. <clears throat> it's because he's not talking about lightning. He's talking about something bright like lightning. He's talking about, well, let's put this, we have to put this together in just a second here. And we'll come back and answer the question. Even so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That's kind of gruesome, isn't it? Because there's going to be a lot of people die. There's going to be a lot of birds gathered to feast. 
But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from sky and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. And now we come to it, verse 30. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see. Doesn't say a couple see. Doesn't say only the true believers will see. It says they, the tribes of the earth, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And then he will send forth his angels of the great trumpet. They will gather together his elect uh, from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. And he actually goes on down there and he says, and there's also another judgment. I want, uh, let, but let's answer this first question and then we'll touch on this next thing here down below. What he's getting at here is all the sky, all the lights go out, all the heavenly lights. So we don't have sunlight. If the sunlight's shining, the moon doesn't shine. And the stars out there, they also aren't shining. So we've got this black backdrop. And God the Son is coming. Now when Paul met God the Son, he said he was bright like lightning, right? No, he said he was brighter than the noonday sun. So here is the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven. It has no other lights that it competes with in any way whatsoever. And what's the earth do? How, why does the sun go overhead? It does that, you know. It actually, it's on a string and it, no. It's the earth is moving. The earth is moving like this, which gives the appearance that the, that the sun is going around us. So as the earth is doing this, and the new Jerusalem is descending out of heaven, lit by the glory of God the Son, who is brighter than the noonday sun, and the glory of God the Father, who also is bright. If you don't understand that the Father is bright, you need to go over and read, um, Jim read it for us today in 1 Timothy chapter 6, that he dwells in light that is not that is unapproachable. And you go over to Acts chapter 7, where you have Stephen talking to, to the Sanhedrin. And he says, I see the sun. Or I see the Son of Man standing, be, go this way, standing out from the right hand. It'd be this direction. Standing out from the right hand of God. Why did he have to stand out from the right hand of God? Because if you just looked up there, would you be able to see that there were two persons sitting up there at that throne? In that brightness? No. you just see this really bright thing up there. It'd be intensely bright. But if he steps out, now you have two distinct brightness. You have the brightness of the Father and you have the brightness of the Son. And you can see that there's two distinct persons, which is what Stephen was, was privileged to see. And re relate that to these people. So you've got this intensely bright city descending in the midst of an absolutely black earth. And there's nothing, there's nothing with which for it to compete. There's no sun, all this. And everybody's going to see in the midst of this intensely bright light descending and coming and coming and coming closer. That's, as I understand it, that's the sign of the Son of Man. It's this bright, absolutely intensely bright light that's going to be brighter than the sun that they... Well, what does the sun do when it's overhead here? What's it doing right now? It lights everything up, doesn't it? It's lighting everything up. It's pretty intense. You imagine what it's going to be like, like when you have two persons of the Godhead lighting a city and it's descending and the brightness of what one of those persons is described as the brighter than the noonday sun. It's going to be something that's going to light the whole earth when they come. But everybody's going to know it's not the sun because it's going to be different. 
This is the sign that they see. So when people are looking for signs today, they're looking, well, we, we hear about wars. Christ's coming must be coming closer. No, that's talking about the second coming. Famines! Christ's coming is coming. No, that's sign for those are things to look forward for the second coming. Those are precursors to the second coming. Not even signs, precursors. We hear of all this stuff. They're precursors to this horrible to, to this horrible time that's coming. And preceding the second coming. But the sign is that on an absolutely black sky, the Father and the Son are going to be descending in this new Jerusalem as it comes near and out of that place, then the Son himself is going to come out. See, the place that he's going to come from is going to get closer to the earth. That's the sign. They wanted to know, he wanted to know when the sign was? There's the sign. That's the sign of the coming of the Son of Man. All the lights go out. And that sign appears in that darkness. Don't read your newspapers. Don't be, don't be those people going, oh, things are bad. COVID's bad. The sun, sun, the sun must be coming. The sun must be coming. You know what? It is true he's coming. But it's not because COVID looks bad or because things have flipped in Afghanistan or whatever other natural disaster or man-made problem happens to be happening in the world. It's always that the sun's coming. It's always that this is taking place. In fact, I want to. Um, anyway, this is not secret, by the way. This is not secret because it said, who gets to see it? Everybody gets to see it. All, all people will see him and all groups will mourn in that, in that way. Oh, I did want you to see one other thing about this because this to me is crazy. In the midst of the insanity of this period of time, look in Matthew 24 and just point this, point this away. Verse 37, for the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah. For in those days, which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking and they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. In other words, to the best of their ability, these people are just going to be carrying on life as normal. They're not going to be going, oh, we better get ready. The apocalypse is coming. They're not going to be doing that. They're going to be trying to carry on life as normal. That's the way the unsaved man is. Even you would have thought that if they would have seen all of the stuff that's going on during Daniel's 70th week, that they would have started saying, maybe I should evaluate my, my life model. Maybe I ought to think, rethink my paradigm for the way I live. Maybe I ought to rethink about how I think about God. Because that's one of the things that's amazing. When you go, I still think that's amazing to go to the book of Revelation. You're over there. These people know who this is from. It actually stands, it says that tells us in Revelation, they curse the God of heaven. They know he's this. They don't sit there and go, oh, God's judging us because of how horrible we are. Let's, like the king of Nineveh, call all the people to repent and let's get this straightened out. Maybe we can save ourselves. They don't do that. They curse him. They curse the God of heaven. And they curse heaven itself. And they even, it says, they even curse us. I don't know why they're cursing us. Because I'm not judging them. Not at that moment. Not to my knowledge. We even get cursed in that. So this is the second coming. This is the sign of the coming. But this is not the rapture. In fact, I want you to, I want to show you a verse. Turn with me to Romans 13 before we actually look at this last set of verses. We're going to go to John 13, but we're going to go to Romans 13 first. Romans 13. And this is something that, that as believers, I think we should always, always be keeping in mind. 
Romans 13 and verse 11, it says, and, and this, then knowing the time, that it is already an hour for you to wake from your sleep. See, sometimes as Christians, we get kind of lazy in our Christian life. We just kind of go through life. We kind of stumble through life, you know, and we're, you know, we're not very with it and we're not on the ball and, and we're not living to the glory of God. And he says that one of the reasons we had to do this time to wake up for our salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. What? Our salvation? I'm saved, aren't I? Didn't the Bible say I'm saved? Well, I am saved, but I'm not done. God hasn't finished yet what he started. We all know that. We love that Philippians 1.6. He's going to finish what he started. He's still working on moving us that direction. This is talking about when he brings it to its finish. It is closer than when we believe. So every day we can say, yeah, I'm closer to the Lord's return for me. I'm closer. And I, I don't say, rather than saying the Lord's return, I say his Lord's return for me. That's different. His coming to us. Now let's go to John 13. And most of you know when we talk about this in John 14, we're going to go to John 13, but... Most of it, most of you know, when I get to John 14, I have one of my favorite verses on the rapture of the church. But it says here in John chapter 13, in verse 33, Jesus is speaking to just the 11. Judas has left the room. And as he's speaking to just the 11 in this context, he says to them, uh, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You're going to seek me. And as I said to the Jews, and I say now to you also, where I'm going you cannot come. And then he gives them the new commandment. And as soon as he's done giving the new commandment, verse 36, Simon Peter said, Lord, would you explain this new commandment to us in a little more detail? No, it's just like he completely forgets that Jesus just gave them this new commandment about loving. Because Peter says, where are you going? You ever, you ever talk to, try to tell somebody about something and you tell them this thing, and then you digress and you tell them another thing and they don't even hear number two because they're stuck on number one. They're still trying to think about what, what in the world was that? And they miss the whole second part. I think these disciples largely miss this statement about this command to love at this point because they're stuck. And Peter's an example. You're going? Where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. Get my page turned. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? Well, I will lay down my life for you. And I know we think Peter is kind of a compulsive here, a little ridiculous. But you know what? What did Peter do in the garden? Did he cut and run right away? No. Reached out and pulls out his sword in the front of, supposedly. It, it tells us in scripture that it was a cohort of soldiers a spirea in the Greek, which meant 600 Roman soldiers. Now there's debate. Did they send all 600 of those out there or did they send a contingent from the 600? There's a reason that we're told that it's a spirea. I think probably they're thinking this guy is raising an insurrection against Caesar. They want to deal with it because that's the accusation that they temple people have had to bring out. And so they might have brought all 600 of them along with the temple police and others. And in the face of all those, even if they only sent 25 soldiers as long as the temple police, even if that's all it was, that's a lot of people for Jesus and 11 guys. If you just kind of look at them as people, 
we forget who Jesus is and what he does with that crowd when they come. But Peter pulls out his sword and lops off the ear of the high priest servant Malchus. Yeah. So when Peter says, oh, I'm ready to lay down my life, I think he does demonstrate it. Satan has not yet sifted him as wheat. That's going to come later. And that's, of course, another Bible study. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I say to you, a cock shall not crow until you deny me three times. In other words, yeah, he was going to be, he was going to be kind of brave for a moment in the garden. But eventually, while Jesus is on trial, Jesus, uh, Peter is going to uh, back off and he's going to deny Christ. Which brings us into verse 1. This thing that Jesus has said about going and what's going to happen agitates them. And so we come to verse 1 of chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. Wouldn't that agitate you if Jesus had just told you you've been with him for three years and he says, I'm going away and you can't come with me. They're going, where are you going? And their hearts are all upset and they're agitated. What in the world are you talking about? He says, believe in God, believe also in me. It's the struggle of the whole Gospel of John, if you ever read through this, is that you find people that believe in Jesus, and yet in the next breath, sometimes they act like they don't. Lazarus dies. It's one of the sisters, Mary or Martha. I, don't, I didn't look this up ahead of time. But they come out and they go, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. In other words, I, I believe you. Yeah, I believe you're the resurrection of life. I don't know what that means, but I believe that, yeah. But he's dead now. You can't do anything about it. Which means <clears throat> there's a part of her that believes this, but there's a part of her that doesn't get it. And so likewise with these disciples, have they given an assent to the fact that they believe Jesus to be the Son of God? Yeah, which means they're believing that he's God. But he's still kind of this man that's walking around. And they're, they're still trying to put all this together. I always think it's amazing. You know, when they're out in the boat, and they wake Jesus up, and I, again, I might because there's two times in, that he's in the boat that this happens. But the one time he gets up and he he said, tells the wind, "Be muzzled," and immediately everything stops and the water's calm. The disciples are freaked out, going, "Who is this? Who is this?" See, there were times that they believed, but they still had some questions. I think maybe we get that sometimes because we can actually have the fruit from the Spirit and direct faith at one promise and give us five or ten minutes and God gives us another thing and we don't use the fruit from the Spirit and we're kind of going, I don't know. We get stuck. We even kind of move back and forth a little bit at times, <clears throat> even though our faith is different in quality than theirs. And he says in verse 2, In my Father's house are many places to dwell, many places to abide, many places to be at ease. If this were not so, I would have told you, for I'm going to prepare a place for you. In other words, there's already a lot of places, but I'm going to get a place ready for you. I think that's important. I'm not going to put you up in one of the places that's there. I'm going to go get a place ready for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and we're going to sit out on my throne and rule the world. No, he says, I'm going to go and come again and I'm going to receive you to myself so that where I am, this place where I'm going away to, that you can't come with me right now, that you may be there also. I still look at that and I still think that statement right out of the mouth of Jesus it's got to be one of the strongest statements on the fact that the rapture and the second coming are not the same event. Jesus spoke the second coming statement in Matthew 24 just a few days earlier. 
Literally, just a few. It's been in the same week. But this is the night that he's going to be betrayed. And he was going to be dead by the time the next the 24 hours from the moment that he says this. And he's telling them something different than talking to them about a sign to look for and about that coming and a coming in judgment and all of these other things. He's talking about going and get, I'm getting a place ready for you guys. If I go get that place ready, I'm going to come back and get you and take you obviously back to that place that I've gotten ready for you. Right? I mean, is that the way you would read it? It's the way I read it. And I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm reading something into it. It's pretty clear. I'm going to come again and I'm going to take you to myself so you can be where I am. Not so I can be where you are. Which is what the second coming idea is. And then of course, then there's a little bit of a question that goes on and we're not going to chase any more of that down. But this is a real powerful statement. No signs. It's a whole, whole different kind of thing. He doesn't tell them what to expect. He just says, I'm going to go get a place ready. And I'm going to come back. So let's talk a little bit about the fact that there's no signs. That when he's talking about his coming for us, it is imminent. Imminent. Here's another world, a word, and I'm not going to ask Kale to help us define imminent now. He, he, he got one question today. So we'll ask Asher. What does imminent mean? Asher's looking at Kale there. Ah. Give us a definition of imminent. There, yep, there he did the same thing. See, most of us don't know what imminent means. Actually, do you know the definitions in the second se se the next sentence? Nothing must happen before this, before he comes for us. Imminent means there's nothing that you expect. It doesn't mean something might not happen in between, but there's nothing that has to happen. Nothing that you know of. You're not looking for something else first. That's what imminent means. There's another word called eminent. Has an E rather than an I. Eminent means somebody of position and privilege, somebody that you honor. Imminent means it could happen at any moment. You don't have to wait for anything. You're not looking at the clock going, man, it looks like he could come right now. But, you know, I, I, I read this verse in the Bible and it says this has to happen first. No, we don't have any of that. There's nothing that has to happen first when we're looking. Said, is it true that it's also I, yeah, I would all, yeah. Who asked that question or said that? Well, Lindsay was just saying. We're that, scholars back here defining your definition. Hey, that's, a, that's another good thing. Nothing's going to stop it. Yeah. Yeah, nothing, nothing is good. Nothing is, oh, I asked the wrong yeah, person. Yeah, you want to ask somebody in our household, you can write to our number one. Okay? Yeah. Yeah, I should have asked Kenya. I'm sorry. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah. So nothing. So nothing else. Nothing else has to happen. Number one. But nothing, number two. Nothing else can intervene. Nothing else can prevent it from taking place. God's got it written on the calendar, and God doesn't go, "Oh, just play this one out with me." God doesn't look at the calendar and go, "Oh, we were going to do this, but you know what? Uh, ben is talking to this guy, and Ben might get him saved. And if I have the rapture right now, Ben's not going to be able to finish witnessing to him, and that kid might. Not, it doesn't work like that. But those are the kind of things I grew up with. That kind of stuff all the time on the rapture that people were saying, "Ah, oh, I don't want God to come back until I get to talk to all my family about Jesus." It's nice sentiment, but it doesn't match Scripture. God isn't going to say, "Okay, we're going to put everything on hold." So that you can do this 
this work. Every believer is going to have finished the works, the God's calendar of the works that you potentially can do. That calendar is going to have been done, whether you fulfilled them or not. Josh, please. The passage in Thessalonians where it says we're waiting for his son from heaven. We're going there in a minute here. Yeah. Very instructive because it tells you that's the next event we're waiting for. That's prophetic. If if there was some other thing written that we should expect, it wouldn't say waiting for his son. It'd be saying waiting for that event. That's right. So let's go to that verse. It's the next verse we have here on our on our slides. First Thessalonians chapter one. This is the verse that jo- that Josh has just referred to. First Thessalonians chapter one. When these people got saved, tells us in verse nine, they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. And then in verse 10, and to await his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who, now this is important. It doesn't say Jesus who will deliver us from the wrath to come. It looks at as Jesus, the one delivering us. Use looks at it in the, we're awaiting him right now, but we're awaiting the one who is delivering. That's the nature of his, the nature of his coming is that it's something so imminent, so positive that we're not expecting anything else except for him to show up in the next breath and rescue us from the coming wrath. That's what we're expecting. That's what we should be expecting. We're not expecting, oh, everything's going to get worse and worse and worse. Yeah, you read, you read Paul's writings to Timothy and to, in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, he does indicate, yeah, as you're living, you're going to watch while you're waiting for Christ to come back for us, you're going to watch things progressively get worse. But how much worse? You're going to have one day waiting for him. It's going to get worse. Two days, 10 days, a year, 2000 years. See, he didn't tell us. He just said that in this time, which we have no idea what it's going to be. Yeah, things are going to get worse around here. You're going to watch people behave worse. But what we're waiting for, what we're anticipating, is Jesus the one rescuing us. That's imminent. Thank you. Something to go along with that is waiting for his son from heaven, anticipating the rapture, is compatible with just living Going about loving your brother and joy, peace, all those things that are associated with that. Whereas if you're waiting for impending disaster, you're battening down the hatches, you're stockpiling food, you are building a fortress, you are, these are all things that are not really doing disaster. That's right. You're going to be, you're going to become a prepper, right? You're going to become a prepper. You're going to go buy some shipping containers. You're going to get, hire Gordon to come out with his big, um, excavator and dig some holes and bury those underground and give you a secret entrance out back and you're going to get ready and you're going to have that stockpile with enough food to live for, I don't know. I mean, you know, the people that do this kind of stuff and some of them call themselves Christians and some of them might, there might even be some real Christians among those groups, but they're doing that because they're expecting everything to get worse and they're not really living in the anticipation that our Lord's coming to rescue us. And God hasn't asked us to hide out from the world. God's asked us to live in the world and be a testimony for him every day. As those people that have that kind of expectation. And as Josh said, if you live with that kind of expectation, well, I don't have this verse, but let me throw a verse in here that goes along with what Josh has just said. Turn with me to 2 Timothy 4. 
Josh's comment's going to add another half hour to that. No, I'm just kidding. Second Timothy chapter four. But this is really a, a good a good statement. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and uh, let's go back up to uh, verse 8. 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. In the future, and Paul's talking about finishing his course. His, he's finished his race. You can see the finish line just out ahead of him. Verse 8, in the future, and in the future there is laid up for me a crown of... What, what's that crown? Righteousness. That's not talking about my righteous standing in Christ. This is a crown related to my practical righteousness, which... I'm going to ask my wife, because she's the one that answers this one like this all the time. What is our righteousness most of the time today? What are you saying? What? Acts of love. In fact, a lot of times when she talks about this, she puts it all together. and She says, righteous acts of love. Righteous acts of love. So he says, it's a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me. And not just to me, but to all those who are loving his appearing. See, if you're living with a real love, a real anticipation of his coming, it's going to affect the way you live. You're going to, you're going to be looking and saying, I'm spending all eternity with these people. I ought to be engaging in some righteous acts of love with these people. Instead, we're like, I can't wait to go see the latest movie. I've watched that trailer 40 times. I want to go see that thing. Or I'm, I want to go out and polish my car, another coat of wax, and so on and so forth. We got all this stuff. And it's not that any of those things are wrong of themselves. But sometimes those things really just kind of preempt in our minds the Lord's coming back for us, even though nothing's going to stop him from coming back. Really anticipating that he's going to return is one of those things that will encourage us to be living righteously. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. <clears throat> Revelation 3.10, a similar statement to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, where he says he's rescuing us from that coming wrath. In Revelation 3.10, it tells us, Because you have kept or guarded the word about my patience, I also am going to keep or guard you out from that hour of testing that is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. And that word that translates testing in here is not a good term. This is like giving you a test, expecting you to fail. Peg, can Tim hit a softball that's pitched at me? Okay, see, my wife's grimacing. She doesn't want to answer that because she knows there's a real good chance that it's going to be swing and a miss, swing and a miss, swing and a miss. He's out. Okay, now let's pick the best pitcher that's playing right now in pro professional baseball and have him pitch to me a baseball, not a softball, not, not that thing that's this big that I maybe have a chance of hitting. We're talking about that little thing with a guy that can throw that, beep, beep, you know, and they get the, this one like that. I, I don't have a chance of hitting that thing. If I do, it's just pure coincidence that I connect with that. It's a test. It's a test that would be expected. Tim, you think you can? You think you can hit any ball? Let's get this guy up here. Let's show you what you can do. That's a negative test. I'm kind of making a joke out of that part because this is not a joke. This is a time. And remember, we were showing a little bit ago how men's love will grow cold. You know what this time of testing is going to do? It's going to prove to men what they are. These men that all think that they're good and they stand and they think, yeah, God's going to reward me for all my good that I've done. 
Like Mormons that say, I've read it in their document, their document that says, God has to, has to let us work for our salvation. They, they actually write it right in their material. It's like God's obliged to let us work for our salvation. And you know what? <laughs> Those people that have worked for their salvation, they're going to see at the final judgment, all the stuff that they worked for was all done selfishly. It's exactly what Paul says in Romans. But you back up here in Daniel's 70th week and you've got these people that have been doing good works and love and you're going to see their love go cold because when the, when the chips are down, they're only looking out for themselves. And it's right here is a good place to show God's going to put them to the test and it's a test he expects them to fail and they will fail it. He, by the way, what does he say here in verse 10? But I'm going to keep you from that hour. See, we don't have to take that test. God doesn't have to prove to me that my love's going to fail. God doesn't have to prove to me that I'm a failure. You know what? Every believer that has ever come to saving, well, you've come to saving faith if you're a believer. Every one of us realizes, I didn't have anything to offer God. Every one of us has realized, I'm not great. God didn't save me because he needed me on his team. Because Tim can always hit the three-pointer from the outside well. No, he didn't choose me for that reason. That's a real joke because Tim really could not hit a three-pointer <laughs> to save my life, you know. But God didn't choose me for that. And, and God didn't save me for that. Christ did the work. If you're, if you're saved, if you're here today, you realize that you're a sinner. You realize that you were lost. You realize that you didn't bring anything to the table. But a mess of sin. And you realize that Jesus Christ dealt with all of that. So we don't have to go through that time of testing. There's no reason for us to face that. So he keeps us out of that time of testing. Because he's not trying to prove that to us. That's something to look forward to. And he says, it's a time of testing that is coming. It's a, literally in the Greek, it says about to come upon the whole inhabited world. In other words, this is written 2,000 years ago, but even then, he said, it's about to come. It's just right there. And we're going, it's been 2,000 years. Oh, God's going, oh, that's been about six hours. <laughs> well, because remember, 1,000 years is like a watch in the night or like a day. So it's been two days or six hours to God. It hasn't been anything. Or to us, that seems like a long time. But it's not. And this is what we are looking forward to being rescued from his from his wrath for Thessalonians 1:10 here being rescued from that time of testing that is about to come upon the whole inhabited world turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5:9 1 Thessalonians 5:9 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9. And I, let's just put this together. It says, let's go back up to verse 4. But you, brethren, you're not from the darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of the, of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as the others. And here, as we've talked about before, this word sleep is different than the one in chapter 4 where it's talking about the sleep of death. That's the word koimao. This is, here is the word kathudo. This is like... You're lounging on, you've got stuff to do and you're, you're slacking off. 
You're being lazy. You're drowsing off. You're dozing, sitting in your chair. Jim died. So let us not sleep like those. Let us not be that. But rather, let us be alert. Let us be sober. For those who sleep, they do their sleeping at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. And since we are from the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined or has not placed us or appointed us for wrath. Do you get that? We are not the objects of his anger. He has not placed us for that. But he has placed us to obtain, uniquely obtain, as a special possession, salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're looking for. We are not looking for anger. In fact, he started the book out, chapter 1, verse 10, saying he's coming to rescue us from that anger. Now he's coming back and he goes, you haven't been appointed to that anger. That's why he's going to rescue you. When he rescues you, rescues you, he is going to cause you to possess specially salvation in a way you have not yet possessed it. As we started over in Romans 13, when we were looking at us, our salvation is nearer than when we believed. In none of these passages yet have we seen any example of a sign, of something that we should be looking for, a sign in which we should be going, hey, I should be looking at this. I see this in the papers. All this was reported on CNN this morning. Peg, get ready. Don't get too attached to anything. The Lord's got to be coming back today. I saw it on CNN. No, it's not like that or whatever news outlet you listen to or happen to read. No, it's not like that. You live every moment of every day. Jeff goes and he's got, got to go out and make sure everything's getting done out there on the farm and he puts his key in there and he can turn that key and go, I could be going before that engine even fires off. <laughs> That's the kind of attitude that we can live with. And if, it, and if that he doesn't come back, well, then I'm going to go about and do these things that God's given to me for his glory. I'm going to do those to his, for his righteousness. But if, but if not, point, just remind myself before I ever get there. I think those are a good way for us to be looking and us thinking about these kind of things. Turn over just a couple pages to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And I'm not going to develop this. We've done this in the past. So I please understand I'm not taking this out of context. I just am not going to treat all of Because this is a, it's not complex, but there's a little bit more going on. There's a point to what Paul's saying that we're not going to fully develop. But 2 Thessalonians 1.6. For after all, it is righteous for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. See, they're getting affliction. It's part of what he's doing. He's paying back. The book of Revelation says that. It says he's avenging the blood of his apostles and his prophets, which I would take those to be New Testament apostles and prophets when he does that, when he puts them together in that order. That's over in Revelation chapter 18. So he is paying back affliction, those who afflict you, and give to you relief. And those of you that grew up in the 60s and the 70s, you probably remember the commercial Anison for Anison Aspirin. I don't even know if they make it anymore. I don't always buy store brand aspirin. But Anison, that's this Greek word. It's relief. It's relief. And so he says, to give relief to you who are afflicted. See, we get relief when those people are getting afflicted. And then there's a little bit more, which we're not going to talk about. It's about it, There's some other details that extend beyond 
the the tribulation that those people get. And we're not going to talk about that here at the moment. So, as we certainly we have not dealt with everything. God is we God has given us no signs we're to be looking for. We are simply to know that Christ could come at any time for us. There's nothing we have to expect. We ought to live our lives in the anticipation that he could be coming. Are we going to face tribulation down here? Yeah. He just said, just said there in 2 Thessalonians, they, they're troubling people. They cause trouble. Jesus himself said that. In the world you have trouble. In, you have tribulation. In me you have peace, but in the world you have trouble. But he's going to come and take us out of the trouble that God's going to cause. God's going to trouble the earth. And we're not going to be subjected to the trouble that God causes to the earth. We are exempt from that. And I know, I've got Christian brothers that say, isn't that kind of selfish to think that God should exempt you? Well, it's not, the, it's not selfish. It's the fact that God promised it to us. That's what it comes down to. It's not that I want to be exempted. Yeah, I'd like to be exempted. But that's not why I teach this. I teach it because God says we're exempt from that. We're not exempt from trouble in the world. But we're exempt from the trouble that he's going to bring on the world for his purpose. I think that's what's important for us to understand. Yeah, we're going to face trouble. That is a that is a genuine entitlement. Thank you. Yeah, Jim was talking about entitlement in the adult class. Yeah. So yeah, we are entitled to this because it's His promise, and His promise is to come back for us, and we ought to live every day as the expect expectation. Ben should be thinking before I ever walk into that classroom tomorrow and see my first group of students for the year. I could go. Dwight could say, before Tim and I ever get the mail tomorrow, I could go. Just on and on. You could go through. You ought to be able to. It's and you, Obviously, you don't have to spend your whole day going, oh, before I do this, Christ would come back. Oh, before. I, if you did that, you probably wouldn't get a lot done. But you ought to live generally with that attitude. You understand? That he could be back in the next moment. And if you know, if we really lived with that general attitude here in our mind, it would affect the way we live. Clearly it would. Father, we're thankful that you have promised, your son has promised, we should say, that he's going to return for us to take us to be where he is. Help us to be those that truly would live with the anticipation that, that's, that, that that is so true that it could happen today, maybe even before we walk out the doors of this building. And let that truth affect us every day of our lives. Thank you for this then. Amen.